Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Welcome to the Library of Mistakes podcast. I'm Russell Napier, the keeper of the library, a beautifully designed building in Edinburgh housing more than 4,000 books about the mistakes that the world keeps repeating, particularly in finance and business. The idea of the library is to help us all learn from these mistakes and stop making them so often. There are also now libraries of mistakes in Lausanne, in Switzerland and in Pune, in India. Visit librarymistakes.com to find out more. The library is owned by Didasco, a financial educational charity based in Scotland, which also runs an online course called Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets, and its in-person variety, which we hold in London twice a year, called A Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more about the courses, see the link to Didasco in the podcast show notes. Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm delighted to welcome Eric Money. Eric is the author of Controlling Credit, Central Banking, and the Planned Economy in Post-War France, 1948-1973. But as we'll discover, Controlling Credit is also about controlling money. And I love one of the subtitles of, of Eric's book. One of, the, uh, one of the subtitles is Monetary Policy Without Interest Rates, which I think a lot of people listening to this won't understand, Eric. But uh, Anyway, Eric used to be the senior economist at the Banque de France, the Central Bank of France. He is a professor in economic history at the Paris School of Economics. Eric, there's so much to talk about in this book, but why don't you explain to our modern audience what monetary policy without interest rates is and and what it looks like? Because I think most people think that interest rates are monetary policy. So obviously they're not. Otherwise, you couldn't have monetary policy without interest rates. So explain the dynamic in the context of your book, and that will give us a good place to begin to discuss how it works and the implications of it. Yeah, so thank you very much. I mean, first of all, the invitation, I'm glad to be, to be here and to talk about these uh, books of economic history, but as long as I was writing it, I mean, it, there, um, I would say the current issues around this book came more prominent and now it's even more than ever. Mm-hmm. And um, so the issue of interest rates does not mean that there was no interest rate. I mean, there was an interest rate. But that uh, interest, the interest rate was not used for uh, influencing inflation or the business cycle more generally. Meaning that the, the central banks, it was true for the central bank of France, but it was true for most European central banks during this period, and also for in many other uh, areas, and it's still, I think, true in many emerging markets. That central banks affect credit and business cycle inflation through quantity rationing rather than through interest rates. So instead of changing the price of credit, they just impose uh, quantity rationing to banks uh, in order to to stop uh, this bank from from lending. So this took many, many forms, and a lot of them are reviewed in the book, so it's become quite baroque to see how many forms it it could take. So it could take the forms of... um, uh, credit ceilings, meaning that the banks were not uh, able to to uh, increase their lending by more than a certain percent, certain percentage by a month or by a quarter. It could take also the, the form of what was called a discount ceilings. So discount ceilings are not on the total outstanding loans of the banks, but on the refinancing at the central banks, meaning that each bank had a quota. And if they're when they have reached this quota, they could no longer borrow 
from the central bank. So it was a strong constraint on, uh, on, on these banks. And there was also reserve requirements that maybe people know more, not more about, and, and, and reserve requirements as a way to constrain the bank for increasing uh, the lending based on, on the fact that they have to keep reserves at, at the central bank. So these are the main tools, but each of these tools, you know, has also some kind of uh, diversity uh, because in this kind of world, I mean, the central banks can use all of these quantitative tools in many different ways, uh, can adapt it to the size of the bank, to the sectors. For example, there were different rules for housing credit, uh, credit to corporates on, on over. But the main idea is very simple, is that instead of raising interest rates, you just restrict credit by all these quantitative instruments in order to fight uh, inflation or to control the business cycle. And I think it's what one of the first main lessons of the book is that during that time, contrary to what people have said that central banks were Keynesian institutions loving inflation, it was really not so true. I mean, they were really fighting inflation because after the war, in many countries, the main problem is inflation. So, uh, so they were not inflation lover. I mean, they, they use these quantitative tools to, to fight inflation. And well, maybe we can go on and to explain why they were using these tools rather than interest rates later on. Well, we'll be getting on to that later for sure, and particularly relevant given what's going on today. For those listening who think this is a conversation about bank credit, we better remember, remind people why it's also a conversation about, about money. So I just wanted to read from the Bank of England website, uh, which reminds us all how money is made. Uh, money is more than banknotes and coins, say the Bank of England. If you have a bank account, you can use what's in it to buy things, typically with a debit card, because you can buy things with your bank account. We think of this money even though it's not cash. Therefore, if you borrow £100 from the bank and it credits your account with the amount, new money has been created. It didn't exist until it was credited to your account. So in, in talking, Eric, about all these ways in which the uh, the central bank was able to control uh, with quantitative methods the bank credit, they were also, of course, in the business of controlling money, as you as you said, but what I think is fascinating, I just want to read a little bit from your book, is the is the impact of this, the incredibly broad ranging of this, uh, and this is what you write early in the book. Moreover, the goals of a policy of intervening in credit allocation were multiple, and uses of the term were consequently numerous and often vague and multivocal. It could be sued for purposes of monetary policy, attempting to limit the credit level through better alloc- or, or attempting to limit the credit level through better allocation, industrial or social policy, helping key economic sectors, budgetary policy, giving priority to government financing, trade policy, favoring credit to export sectors, capital controls, favoring domestic loans, financial stability, preventing an excess of credit that is potentially disconnected from real activity in particular sectors and so on. So the degree of control that you explain in monetary policy with interest rates it gets into every nook and cranny of the economy, doesn't it? And uh, is that what it was designed to do, or uh, did it, that all end up as a as a byproduct? Uh, no, I mean it was designed to be a complement to a strong state intervention in uh, financial system, and more specifically in the allocation of credits. Meaning that at that time, this is the post-war period, people have lost faith in a free market, to say the least. So they think that a uh, so it's not only in principle, I mean, they really think, so remember, it's not so, f- so long after uh, the Great Depression. And uh, so most of the people at that time think that the banks are not, have not performed well 
to finance uh, to finance investment. So it's not it's not only that banks have created crisis, but it's also that banks have are seen as institutions that have not been able to finance long term investment. So uh, what is happening in France, but again, it is really not specific to France, is that the government are going to uh, develop a lot of what we call today public development bank. So which are banks which are financed in various ways. I mean, they can issue bonds, they can take uh, deposits, usually regulated deposits, but each of them are some in some ways sponsored by the government or oversight by the government. And, uh, and their role is really to finance long-term investment with some priority sectors which are not determined by financial returns, but really by the government. So it's really, so it's not a, a communist economy. It's not a command economy. Uh, it's still, I mean, people at the time thought it was still free market in some way, but there is a lot of state interventions. So which means that, you know, it's really at, at the state level, which maybe we will have to define more precisely who, who are these people which are deciding, uh, you know, where credit should go um, with priority. And, and everything should be compatible to that, including uh, inflation, inflation fighting, which means that, for example, if, uh, if at some point the, the government has realized that housing credit is too, is too slow, it's too low because, and there is a shortage of housing. And if there is a need to contract aggregate demand and credits because uh, in other sectors, uh, the other sectors are booming and there are inflation, they will use these quantitative tools about I was talking about before to be sure that there will be uh, a decrease in credit in some sectors, but not in the housing sectors, uh, because there was it was seen as it was needed to have this sector. So usually you have this like, housing sectors where someone usually disconnected from the other one. It could be true for export credit, all central banks in Europe at that time. And again, it's it's not there, it's not there. I mean, many emerging countries are still doing it. If that actually they would be sure that to to support export credit, even though there is some monetary tightening, uh, so there was all this idea really to to combine. I mean, to make monetary policy in the sense of inflation fighting compatible with all the broad objectives of the of of the state regarding credit allocation. Well, let's jump to the modern day. We'll come back because we definitely need to talk about the nineteen seventies as well. But 17th of April in New York City, I'm sure you've read the speech by Christine Lagarde, who talks about why central bank policy of using interest rates to attempt to target demand is passe and why we have to move on to something else. And she recommends in her speech that the central banks and bankers need to get on to the business of dealing with supply side, not demand side. Uh, and that's what I think of when I think of that last conversation. You were saying how basically by controlling bank credit, there was a, an allocation of, of capital, effectively, debt capital in this case, to deal with supply issues and you flagged up residential property. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the speech of April 17th, but does it smack off this system if Christine Lagarde's talking about using central bank policy to deal with supply side issues rather than using interest rates the controlled demand side issues? So, uh, yes and no, because I would say uh, yes, because indeed, I mean, uh, during this period, there were I mean, supply side issues were seen as something to be considered by central banks. But there is a big difference with today. And I think it's really import important to emphasize it because it's, it's, I think most people would view that as a paradox that at that time, 
central banks were definitely key institutions, but they were they were not taking the decision of allocation alone. And that's a big difference because today, I mean, when the ECB is saying, okay, we need to deal with supply side issue, it's just, I mean, everybody see that just only at the business of the central bank. Okay, so the, the central bank has to decide, you know, to make his own doctrine about, you know, how they will deal with supply side issue. When a central bank in the 1950s or 60s recognize that they have to deal with supply side issues, they're not saying, okay, we are going to do something special. They're just saying, okay, we, we are going to finance more some kind of institutions, especially mostly the public development banks, which are themselves dealing with the supply side issues. Meaning that in, in many countries, there is, again, a, usually a special bank uh, set up by the government for uh, priority financing to the industry. This idea that, you know, the, the bond market was not enough. I mean, bond market were functioning, but they were not enough to provide capital to long-term investment. So they set up a, a special bank to do that. And the central bank is just providing liquidity to these banks. So this is very important because you see that Central banks are a key part of, I would say, the general credit policy or financial policy at the time, but they're really not uh, what we, we today say is the, the only game in town. And, and I think that that's a big problem today that, you know, a central bank alone cannot say, you know, what can be the priority sectors, how a central bank can deal with supply side. I mean, if you don't have a, a consistent or coherent uh, policy where you know, you know exactly which kind of institutions are, are supposed to deal with these issues of supply side and which type of, of, of financing should be developed in that way. It's very difficult to know what the central bank, and especially an independent central bank, can, can do. So I think there is a, and this is actually a more recent book I wrote, which is, will be forth, uh, been published in French, this one and forthcoming next year, uh, called Balance of Power, which I think that now, there is a big gap which, which, between what central banks are doing and the legitimacy of their uh, of, of their actions, because they say, okay, we are going to engage in all these new issues, supply side issue, management of public debt, green lending, but I mean, these institutions really cannot do that alone. I mean, there need to be coordination, policy cooperation, but also institutional cooperations. Otherwise, it's just not going to be uh, democratic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Paul Tucker uh, raises that in his book, Unelected Power, and he refers to overmighty citizens. And actually, I'm just going to quote from the Lagarde speech because she recognizes the problem here with, with independence or not independence. And she says, uh, in this sense, insofar as geopolitics leads to a fragmentation of the global economy into competing blocks, this calls for greater policy cohesion, not compromising independence, but recognizing interdependence between policies and how each can best achieve their objective. And when she says policy, she means fiscal and monetary policy. It's it's a compromise, interdependence, not de not dependence. Uh, you know, you've covered this post-war period. Was this, The central bank wasn't really independent at all, was it, in this system? And I know we're using the mechanism of the central bank. I realize it's coming through the Banque de France, but there was a huge amount of government influence on Banque de France. Is that correct? There was, but again, it's much more complicated than you know, what people usually think, uh, that there was absolutely no independence during that period. So here in that case, I mean, a lot of things that I said before were really not specific to France. 
But once you enter the issue of central bank independence, yeah, there's a lot of diversity across countries. Like in the UK, for example, it's pretty clear that in starting 1946, it's not the, the central banks which is setting the interest rate, it's really the government. So in that sense, it was clearly not independent. Um, this was not the case in France. I mean, in 1945, where they implement all these new systems where, as I said, a lot of interventions, state interventions in the, in the credit system. And at the same time, they give the central banks is allowed to do all this kind of quantity rationing. There is no change in the central bank status. So central bank status, I mean, central bank is nationalized. I mean, I, and today all central banks are almost all central banks are owned by the state. I mean, there are very little, some few central banks that still have private shareholders. So this is the main difference, but there is nothing saying that there will be a change in the governance of the central banks that will put more pressure from the government on the central bank. This happened only in 1974. So before 1974, I mean, the central bank of France is not less independent uh, it, it used to be before. And there is even a, uh, an event that I've been uh, a lot of French historians has, has written on that before before I did that in the mid 1960s actually uh, there is a government that is that has to resign because the central banks was uh, so so much opposed to the to the budget that they say in the press that the budget was not sustainable and the parliament say that uh, indeed the central banks was right and and the government has to resign because of the pressure of the parliament and the parliament make a kind of alliance with the, with the central bank in that way. So it's, it's an interesting case. So I, I, just to say that this issue of central bank independence, I, I think it's much more complicated than what we usually, usually think. But what was, what was very clear was that the more coordination between central banks, fiscal policy, and what was called at the time, and I think this is still a useful um, uh, term to use today, credit policy. Okay, and credit policy encompasses a lot of state policies re related to to finance and so on. I mean, uh, a lot of these have been recreated a little bit with macro prudential policy in the recent years. Uh, that is a form of credit policy I mean, in, in many ways. Uh, and um, and so I mean, so, so this is just to say that there was, there was definitely some more co coordination. But not obviously fiscal dominance, for example. This is what yeah. you're thinking about. It's clearly not yeah. obvious there. Yeah, I think I think people forget that there, certainly for the Bank of England, we have a, an MP, a MPC, and an FPC. And the job of the FPC is, in some degree, to steer where bank credit's going to, because it's it's adjusting the risk weighting of assets, and in adjusting the risk weighting of assets, it's playing some some role in that. So this that, that committee was set up, I think, in 2010. So it's been a been around for a while, and this basically works in the in the post war reconstruction of of Europe and France. It's a policy that doesn't seem to have a lot of downside until we get to the nineteen seventies, of course. And I wanted to read a little bit about your book from the nineteen seventies, uh, and you say this uh, about the seventies. They concluded that bringing down inflation solely by controlling credit and money would be too costly for the economy, and that what what had to be emphasised was a policy of fixed exchange rates wage regulation, financial liberalization, liberalization and, and price controls. Uh, do you think it's inevitable that that's where we end up with this system? Or was there something else going on in the 70s and it would be possible to run this system without creating too much inflation? I mean, if the government slash central bank is involved in the growth in credit, probably they're prone to letting too much credit growth and 
inflation comes, or do you think it was unrelated and they ended up going for the sort of price control, wage control? And uh, how, do, how do those things interact? Or was it just a coincidence that inflation got out of the bag and we ended up with these particularly extreme policies? Mm. So um, I would say that it's, it's still a bit of a mystery of why inflation uh, occurred during, during this period. I think that it's, it's very difficult to, to come with a, with a compelling explanation of that. There are many factors uh, which are coming in. I think the central banks were in part responsible for that. I mean, something which was very striking to me when I was working in the archives of the central banks, but also in the, at the, at the European Union level, there was, there was a lot of discussion at, the, at what was called at the time the monetary policy group of the, of the European community. But it's clear that starting in the 1970s, there was this idea that's come up that the central bank has no longer a lot of impact on inflation. Because before that, as I was saying, I mean, they were really using credit restriction to impact inflation. And starting in the 1970s, they, they really start to say that it's more driven by wages. It's more driven by energy prices. It's more driven by the end of the of, of, of Britain's system. And so whether they are completely true or whether they're just a, a way to hide their responsibility and negate their responsibility. It's still completely, it's not a lot completely clear, uh, but still I think that there were, there was some political economy issues that it started to become very complicated to do this quantitative rationing once you have a system that have developed, that have become much more complex, uh, especially in terms of uh, the, I would say the, the system has, has evolved a little bit in the early 1970s with more uh, 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 greater role for interest rates, I mean, greater liberalization. I mean, there's always a, a quite large dose of uh, financial liberalization in the 1960s. And they have a lot of difficulties to manage these more hybrid systems where actually, so interest rates so on credit for are no longer regulated. So the lending rates and part of the deposit rate for commercial banks are no longer regulated starting the late 1960s. So it's a very first step of regulation. And then they have a lot of difficulties to adapt their monetary policy to this new environment, where there's still a, there is still a lot of uh, state interventions, but a lot of uh, uh, a new free market mechanism. And I think this driving a lot of uh, questions for today, I mean, because it's a, uh, it's very difficult for central banks to to manage these kinds of hybrid systems where you have a part of the system which is controlled by uh, direct policies. It can be either price control or um, or uh, you know banking regulation, for example. And on some other segment of the market, indeed, it's rather market interest rates which are going to play. And uh, and I think it's to know that the 1970s, it's important to remember that indeed it did not went very well in that, in that respect. Uh, so is that, this is why I think we cannot today think about a system where we just like simply go back to the 1950s or 1960s. I think it just, it cannot work like this because you, you the, 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 the financial system have changed. And I think, I don't think there is a way that it became exactly equivalent to what it was in the 1950s, but still we see quite clearly that now there's more more and more government role in the financial system. So how you, you come back to this more hybrid system, 
So maybe closer to what happened in 1970s, but starting from a actually different initial conditions. It's more than the reverse. And how are we going to 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 manage uh, that? You know, where you have at the same time credit which are which is more and more influenced by the government, either through direct subsidies or through, for example, state guarantees, and uh, and other segments which are more free market segments. Yeah, I mean, one of the pervading facts in that period that you mentioned here is that financial markets really played very little role in France after the war, and uh, whether that was a bond market or the equity market. So uh, the person who controlled the bank controlled most things. Financial markets, even in France, are much bigger now, both the equity market and the bond market. So there's going to be a, a bigger issue of control if, if, if we get there. Uh, one of the things that jumps off the page is that the reason that one of the reasons that government and central banks like this is it worked really quickly. So the current uh, narrative on the markets is when will interest rates bite? When will interest rates change demand for credit, money supply, etc.? The quantitative control uh, thing was pretty easy because they they changed the next morning after the implementation of the change in the quantitative policy. Uh, so we didn't have to sit around and think for weeks, months and years as to when the impact of higher rates was going to come home to roost because the change in the quantity, uh, the demanded quantity worked. Is that, is that, was that a reason you think that they chose this as a methodology as well? Is that you could see a direct result rather than having to wait through a kind of market system where a higher price of money would also ultimately impact the quantity of money? Uh, yeah, you, you're, you're completely right. I mean, this was a very important reason right after the war because again and right after the war the main one of i mean the two main problems are reconstruction and inflation so there's a lot of inflation everywhere after the war and just they, they realize that if they have to increase interest rate to fight an inflation that after the war in france is around 40 percent so it's much higher than today it's like how you how you fight forty percent inflation with a in increasing interest rate. Either you kill you completely kill the economy, which is not what you want to do after after a war, or you you have some, and, and also because it's uncertain. I mean, just like the effect of interest rate. So they realize that doing this kind of a rationing is actually as as much more direct and immediate consequence on uh, on, on credit. So this is a very important. Uh, uh, point that are, yeah, I think what was very, very relevant at, uh, at that time. Now, the, the period we write about in your book is a period of the, most of it anyway, of the existence of the Bretton Woods Agreement. Uh, but I wanted to read something else from your book in relation to capital controls and discuss whether these capital controls were necessary because of the Bretton Woods Agreement or they were necessary because you know the Bretton Woods Agreement and the credit controls, and you write this, capital controls were necessary to make credit controls fully effective. When there was a potential conflict between the balance of payments and the domestic monetary policy stance. So had France had a, living in a flexible exchange rate environment in this period, not Bretton Woods, do you still think that uh, capital controls are a necessary part of credit controls or can we have credit controls without capital controls? Yeah, I think that if, if there are strong credit controls, uh, you know, much stronger, like for example, macro policy today, which would be like some, I would classify as a light credit control. Uh, then capital controls are, are necessary complements because, I mean, if you take one example of a, you know, if you, if your main goal is, for example, to decrease prices in one sector, let's say the housing sector, uh, 
if you just cut credits in housing, and actually some other foreign banks are able to, to finance the housing market from abroad, then you're just everything you are doing is uh, is uh, is meaningless I and mean, it's not effective. So this is one quite a obvious example, uh, which is maybe one of the most radical. But uh, you can find this kind of, of logic as a, as a, in, in many similar mechanisms. But this is the main idea that as long as you are in a system where prices are not the main uh, uh, determinants of the allocation of funds, I mean, if you want to close the system, if you to, to control the business cycles, then indeed capital controls are quite important complement or uh, of credit controls. And I think this is really something I learned working on Bretton Woods uh, during this period that I, I didn't know before because I mean, I've been, been trained as, as an economist. I mean, uh, usually in textbooks, you see that the purpose of capital control is just to, to give more marginal autonomy to monetary policy and with this idea that there is a Mondel tri uh, impossibility uh, tri triangle. And so it's just like the capital control are there just to create a spread between the domestic interest rate and the foreign interest rate. While in practice, when you look at, at how capital controls really worked, you see that they are really more as a complement of these domestic credit, credit controls or sometimes even industrial policy, that they are there, you know, as a, as a, as a complement of clear investment policies by the central banks and so on. And, and again, if you look at how a lot of emerging markets today are using capital controls, uh, this is, I mean, this is, this is a, was the reason how they use it. And this is one of the reasons why actually something that seems quite surprising to people is that capital controls are usually long lasting. I mean, there are very few capital controls that are just there for one or two months like in the textbook model, uh, like economists lack, where, where it would be there, there only to, you know, to tame uh, the, the global capital flows during a very short period and, uh, and to prevent carry trade or whatever. I mean, usually capital control are there for, for years and quite targeted to some specific sectors because they are more complements of, a, of, a, of, a, of a domestic, uh, these domestic policies. And now that we see a lot of countries going to more protectionist measures regarding, for example, subsidies to green investment and so on. I mean, this is going to be the, the, the question, okay? Well, what is, what is a financial complement to what many countries are doing now, this kind of trade protection that they say you, you, you cannot, uh, I mean, you, you have subsidies if, you're, um, if you buy cars, for example, from your, your own market, okay? So this is trade production, but I think this may have a counterpart in the in, in financial markets too. So uh, this all leads to the end of the book, which I think comes to, I think it's a fairly dramatic conclusion. So I wanted to, to read that. We've, we've, we've been through this age as monetary policy without interest rates, but it comes to an end. As we, as we all know, when we go back to a system where interest rates and central banks using interest rates are the more prevalent way of doing this. But you write this about the period and its end. Once the historical importance of central bank credit policies in post-war Europe is recognized, it becomes natural to wonder whether the reforms and rejection of these policies in the 70s and 80s were linked to the process of European monetary integration. The end of credit policies in European countries has been a key phenomenon for achieving the conversion of central bank practices and the reduction of state interventionism in the allocation of capital. The EMU was built 
on this ground. I, I think it's pretty clear that they're not necessarily connected, but that the EMU could not have been created unless these policies had been rejected, which begs the obvious question. If they start creeping back in again, is it compatible with a single currency? So it is as long as they're done at the European level. I mean, so, you know, what I said, I mean, the, the sentence you just quoted, I think this is true, but this is a kind of... This was a historical necessity. It's not a theoretical necessity, meaning that the reason why um, credit policy was abandoned uh, in all, in the, during the path to the EMU was that the European countries did not manage to coordinate their domestic credit policy. So at the time, and as it is of, very often the case uh, during a process of financial liberalization, that actually the process of financial liberalization is a kind of easy solution for policymakers that don't want to tackle very difficult issues of uh, very uh, strong distributive issues. So when you have a lot of uh, distributive issues that can come up for domestically, also for the coordination of policies, like in, in European, actually saying, okay, we, we turn to the market is kind of e easy option because in some ways policymakers they do not fully take the responsibility of what is going to to happen, and this is, I think, what what happened during the 1980s. Uh, something I, I, I quoted in the book, which I think is very important and was very striking to me, that if you look at the the Werner report, which is a report, the first report uh, pushing for the creation of European Monetary Union in 1971, it's pretty clear that what they want to harmonize is monetary policy and credit policy. The term credit policy appears many times in this report. If you read the dollar report in 1988 that eventually led to the creation of the EMU, this term credit policy has completely disappeared. And, and again, it, it was a historical necessity because I think that it would have been difficult to make the EMU without that. But which does that mean that the EMU cannot have its own credit policy today. I mean, that's what I think. And, and at the end, I mean, there is some kind of, there are already some kinds of credit policy in, uh, in the Eurozone. I mean, there, there is a European investment bank, I mean, which has some, uh, uh, some people who may disagree with our investment strategy, what they think, but I mean, it's a European institution that has a strong, uh, views. There are a lot of credits, you know, associated, for example, for, uh, agricultural loans, special agricultural loans. I mean, it's not, huge, but it does exist. So there are some, uh, credit policy has never fully disappeared in, in Europe. The, the question is, how do you make, is it possible to coordinate that at the European level with monetary policy? I think it is in some ways. I mean, if we think, for example, of the big discussions today of the, should the ECB engage in some forms of green refinancing? I mean, as you, as long as you have a, a green, uh, European green taxonomy, I think it's not impossible that the, the ECB uh, can do that. So, so one specific example, uh, Eric, of credit policy is the governments, and this is the member states, providing guarantees on bank credit. So banks making loans with guarantees. So let's take a specific example. So just before he left office, Prime Minister Draghi, uh, for the, on behalf of the taxpayer, underwrote a 16 billion euro line of credit to NL, the large Italian uh, utility energy company. That is 
not the centralization of credit policy, is it? That's the decentralization of credit policy. I mean, that wasn't guaranteed by the European Commission, or, nor do I think was it authorized by any centralized body either. If that's the way forward at the member state level, with each member state deciding the form of loans it would like to guarantee and therefore controlling credit via guarantee, another one of your mechanisms, a different type of it. Is this not, are we not witnessing the, the devolution of this policy, which is effectively monetary policy rather than its centralization? Yeah, I think that that's your, your, uh, your, your, your right on me that if, if this credit policy becomes very strong at the national level, without coordination. I mean, it's an issue first for European credit policy I mean, itself, because then it becomes very difficult to, to, um, to coordinate this policy across country. And it would be a huge issue for, for the central bank. I mean, big issue, because let's say that if interest rates at the national level are actually mostly affected by government guarantee, which might be the case, I mean, in the, in the, in the case you are mentioning, I mean, these guarantees as de have definitely have effect on interest rates. Uh, then, you know, what, what is the ECB doing? How can the ECB influence uh, the, the, the different interest rates across country? That's going to be very uh, difficult. I mean, it's also already something which is very uh, also a big question in the housing sector. I mean, for the housing sector, I think one of the reasons why the ECB has never had a very clear uh, doctrine re regarding housing prices or risk in the housing sectors that the, the functioning of housing sectors and more generally of housing finance has remained very country specific in the in, in the European Union. So it's another example where, unfortunately, I mean uh, it's a, it has been very difficult to have a, a coordinated um, European credit policy. So and but as very often in in uh, the history of the European Union that. Uh, and and, uh, and the, the housing sector is, is a good example is that if you, these are very strong institutions that already exist at the national level, you, you just can, the best you can do is just to coordinate them as far as you can, but it's very uh, rare that you, you, you will get a new EU institutions. But, but some, for some new policies, and this has been the case, for example, in the you know, for, for, for planes, if you think about Airbus and so on. Every time there is a kind of new policies, and this is especially what's happening now with the environmental policies, that since there are not so huge big institutions at the national level, I feel it might be easier to start them directly at the European level. It's, uh, I mean, it's been a surprise to me that the European Central Bank hasn't been more aggressive about trying to stop these policies at the national level, given, and, and these are the policies specifically I mean about encouraging banks to lend, because when they lend, as we said at the beginning, they're also creating money. Have you seen any evidence that the uh, ECB is doing anything to try and rein this in? Because if they don't rein it in and it continues, then as we both just discussed, there are some significant problems coming down the line, but I don't see any evidence. Maybe maybe you're closer to it. Maybe you've seen some evidence that they really consider this to be a threat and they're doing something about it. No, I think as, as, as you say, I think this is something which is very underappreciated. Uh, and mostly because just like people have stopped reasoning with you know everything we have said in the last 30 minutes, is a kind of reasoning that people have, you know, forgotten. I mean, that once you have all these kind of policies, you coordinations need to be political. It cannot be otherwise than, than political. 
And, and I think it's it's still something that people have difficulties to 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 understand. And and this is why I think at, at the ECB, the, uh, I would not be surprised if it's not fully uh, appreciated of what's happening now and and the risks that this divergence in credit policy might rise for 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 a common European monetary policy. I mean, it was the same time. I, I mean, when there was after the energy crisis linked to the Ukraine war recently, when many countries started to implement some kind of price controls, and this was not coordinated at all, and which I think is a big is a big problem. And I think we still do not understand fully the consequences of that. Mm. Uh, but I think it was it's clearly one of the reasons why the, the ECB policy has had, I would say, little impact on, on inflation in the, in the, in the last year. Year because I think it's just not coordinated with all the measures which have been taken by, by governments. And I think people have just forgotten to think that once you start having all these kind of measures that we have seen coming back a lot in the last years, you know, state guarantee, price control, and so on, if you don't think about the coordination, uh, that's not going to happen uh, by, by itself. Okay, It's not because you have one common institution that will be coordination. So Eric, this is why I'm this is why I'm telling everybody to read your book because they need to think differently. It sounds like we should be telling the central banks as well that they need to read your book, but it may be a history of post World War II uh, central banking and the planned economy. But it's so much more than that, and I think there's a complete failure to understand monetary policy without interest rates. So we need to get it back onto the agenda, not just for investors but for policymakers. So uh, it sounds like your your next book is going to try and do that. Is that is that what I'm gathering? So the next book is really about the I would say the institutional part of that today is really you know how we we improve the coordination between the central banks, the parliament, and the, and and the government while maintaining central bank independence. I mean, I think there are very good reasons for central bank independence. I think what called this balance of power is uh, also necessary in a in a in a democracy. But people have forgotten again that they've forgotten that central bank independence does not mean absence of coordination. Between different politics, so but I very much agree with you. I mean, sometimes when people re they see this history book, and the first question they ask is whether we should come back to this era or not. Which I think is not a good question. I mean, there's no history is never going backward. So this is not. And as an economic historian, I will never write a book to say, okay, we should go back to these years. I mean, so this is not the purpose. The purpose is really, as you say, that history helps you to think differently. And I think now, if you adapt just like the framework we have been used to work in the 1990s or early 2000s. It just doesn't work to understand the world we are, we're living. So it's not about applying the 1950s framework, but I think if you think start thinking differently and, and thinking what it used to be in history, actually you see that it's easier to make sense of what's happening now that if you just uh, open a textbook, economic textbook where the standard things that you you, you Eric, that sounded that sound all like the almost like the manifesto for the Library of Mistakes. That is that is why we exist because so many things in financial history, for some reason, don't make it into the textbooks. So by contributing to this podcast, you are helping us in our mission to change the world one mistake at a time. This is a big one, and uh, I'd like to thank you for I'd like to thank you for the book and just to recommend everybody should read it. I do think we have scraped the surface of what's in your book. And, uh, and it's just a reframing. It's a reframing of how we need to see things from a very different angle. 
And uh, and strikingly, anybody who's been to business school in the last 30 years won't have been taught it. So they will come away from a business school with a view of the way that interest rates are monetary policy. Uh, and they're not always monetary policy. You prove that very clearly in this book. And I think that's something we all need to to focus on. So, Eric, thanks. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for the book. I hope you'll join us when the next one comes out. Yeah, sure. I mean, so it's called Balance of Power. And as I say, it's about democracy and central banking. It comes out in the next year. Wonderful. Get it rushed out and get it out in English because I failed my French exam. So the sooner it's in English, the better. Yeah. So, uh, Eric, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Russell. Thanks for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, simply go to libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader, and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks, and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform.